Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we're talking with author-historian Carol Faring Shepley. She has updated her best-selling book, St. Louis, an Illustrated Timeline, in which she touches all the important historical bases. Carol Shepley joins me in studio. Nice to see you again. Well, nice to see you, too. It's been a few years since the original version of That's this book right. came out. <laughs> Four years, I guess Four it's years, been. Four oh, years, yeah, wow. because wow. it was the 250th anniversary. That's right, exactly. Well... How much updating have you been able to do in the four years? Well, it's a whole 40 more pages, but they're not as many pictures, so it's a lot more updating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like 50 pages of the old book. It's a very, very handsome book and very heavy, too. <laughs> it must <laughs> yes. weigh five pounds. And, and intellectually heavy, too. <laughs> yeah, oh, of course. Of yes. course. It goes without saying. I'm surprised that there are fewer pictures and less artwork in this one. It seems crammed full of it. Oh, oh! well, there are fewer pictures in the new part, you know, because... Oh, I see. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Well, what specifically did you uh, feel you needed to update? Well, most specifically, when I completed work on the first edition, it was the end of August 2014, mm -hmm. and Michael Brown was killed August 9th. And so I mentioned Ferguson, but that was what I really wanted to wrap my mind around. I wanted to read everything I could and come to some conclusions. And also, I did some wonderful new research about the World's Fair. I got t found tons of new material. Is there anything that we don't already know about the World's oh, Fair? Oh, I think so. Really? Such as? <laughs> well, of course we know that it was a collaboration of everybody in town and that um, David Roland Francis got it all going. It wouldn't have happened without him. And of course, the mayor, Rolla Wells, who made sure the streets were clean and the garbage was collected, got rid of the corrupt city boss who was, who was mm. messing that stuff up and made the water pure. But every single person in town put in their effort I mean, to planting specific flowers out in front and cleaning, sweeping their streets. And, and most especially, some of the most fun things I found were about, well, first about the um, primitive peoples, the anthropological uh, exhibit. Some of those were kind of upsetting. And then all the new and modern things that we now, the electric plug, that was the first time anybody mm -hmm. saw an electric plug. <laughs> and, and electric lighting in and of itself was a, yes. big, a big deal at the fair. Let's go back to those indigenous groups, though, because that, uh, particularly today, people look back on that and say, what the heck were we thinking? That was totally exploited. It, 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 it seems just horrible that they brought in people from Africa, from South America, the Philippines. They had, uh, you know, 90 acres worth of people's habitats. And, and the virgoers went and looked at them as though they were animals in the zoo. Yet, William Marion Reedy at the end said, I've learned that these people have so much that the, to offer and we can learn from them. So they did... It did ennoble them in some ways, too. Explain who Mr. Reedy was, oh. because <laughs> your, your publisher is also named Reedy. Yeah, it's Reedy Press. And when I first met Josh Stevens, I said, is this named after William Marion Reedy? And then I knew we had a meeting of the minds. He was in the 1890s. He became the publisher of The Mirror, which was one of the premier literary journals in the United States. Its subscriptions was circulation was larger than The Atlantic at 
at the time. And he he discovered, well, of course, you know, he discovered Sarah Teasdale. She was here, but also Ezra Pound. He mm. was one of the first people to discover Emily Dickinson. I mean, that's what kind of a, a tastemaker he was. And Josh Stevens, the, the owner of Reedy Press, named it Reedy in a tribute to this particular uh, gentleman. Absolutely. Your first book was uh, a victim of that fire that uh, Reedy suffered. Yes. That was a disaster. Wasn't yes, it? it's just about a year ago. They their whole warehouse went up. You could see the smoke from ninety miles away, mm. and I lost all my books. You know, it was very. It was. It's very painful to think about still. And they, they lost two hundred thousand books. And two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand. I had never seen that uh, seen that figure yes. before. Well, that I guess was one of the reasons why this second edition has been uh, published. Yes. Um, in December, we did a benefit for reading. A lot of the authors did in, in the duck room. Joe Edwards offered that for us. And then in January, Josh called and said, "Would you like to do a, a second edition?" And I just jumped mm. at the chance because I'd been doing research just because that's what I like to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not. Well, you've got another fundraiser coming up, uh, I see here. Is it this Thursday? Is yes, Thursday night? yes, yes. And NPR is part of it, too. Yeah, and, yeah. and what, what are the funds being raised for? You know, actually, I don't know. Yeah. I guess for I guess for Reedy Press, you know. Well, it's at the athletic club, uh, Missouri Athletic Club. It's a club, Missouri yeah. Athletic Club, and, and it's <clears> um, <throat> going to be like the Moth Radio Hour. Uh, uh, five Reedy authors plus... Um, uh, What's his name? Calvin Riley, who's the uh, director of the George Vashon Museum, uh-huh. will be all telling stories. He's also a poet. That that's at uh, seven o'clock at the MACIC here, and it also says says the proceeds will be going to Missouri Athletic Club charity. So that's, oh, that's so good. That, oh, I'm that's glad. A, yeah. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to the book. Um, and I'd like to return to Ferguson. Uh, what uh, what sort of uh, conclusions and um, opinions and editorial comment do you have with regard to Ferguson in the book? You know, I spent three months reading every single newspaper, every book I could find that was published about it. And uh, I believe this was something that was going to happen somewhere in the United States. I mean, it was. this is a, a, a situation that exists. There's real problems between African-Americans and white police officers. And, you know, as uh, Al Sharpton said, Ferguson has pulled the Band-Aid off racism Mm. in America. It didn't end it by any stretch, the the police confrontations. But I also feel it's very unfair that Ferguson has this reputation because Ferguson was a successfully integrated community. Um, the, the New York Times said it's part of a ring of rage around St. Louis. That's, that's, that's just not true. And even Michael Brown, as we now know, he appeared this model citizen in, in early mm-hmm. reports, but, but he certainly, you know, was, had done some things wrong himself there. I guess what it really exposed was what the what the social structure was in Ferguson and other places where people were being pulled over driving while black and they were being right, right. basically put in debtor's prison because they couldn't pay fines and that yes, sort of thing. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That's that's the worst part, yes. Yeah. And yeah. and that had you know, they are remedying that. They began almost immediately working on that because of the Department of Justice consent decree. Yeah. 
So what what else is is new in the uh, in the book? Well, um, there are several people that I'd left out. Really important people: Dave Stewart, Gio Obata, Ted Jones. There are new people like that. There's new information about the founding of St. Louis, and then of course all this new information about the World's Fair. Yeah. Um, I, I went through the book, and as uh, as I like to do, get as much of it uh, digest as much digest as much of it as possible. As I'm trying to say, and one of the things that uh, kind of caught my eye were some obscure women, very very important to the history, but we don't know much about them. Let me you can you can tell us a little bit now. How about Susan Minor? Virginia Minor. I, I thought it was Susan Meyer. Attempted to vote in 1872. Yeah, that's Virginia Meyer. Yeah, well, right, 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 right. <laughs> another oh, mistake. You both got mixed up with Susan B. Anthony. Maybe, that's why. Maybe. Because she was as important mm. as Susan B. Anthony at the time. Um, she came to St. Louis from Virginia, and she married her cousin, so therefore she got to keep her name, just like mm. the feminist of the day. And she became active in, in civic affairs during the Civil War, but it was afterwards, the year after, when her only son, who was 13, year olds, 13 years old, was shot and killed mm. in a hunting accident that she was galvanized to make her life make a difference for the people of the world. And she believed that women were citizens too, and that but they were not enjoying the rights of citizenship unless they could vote. So she marched up and attempted to vote in the election of Grant v. Uh, Greeley in 1872. And of course, she was refused. Mm -hmm. And then she studied law and her husband was a lawyer, and they took a case clear to the Supreme Court where they lost in a unanimous decision. She was about, <laughs> about 50 years too early with, yes, uh, with yes. all of it. And the suffrage, uh, suffragists were also active here uh, 50, yes. years, 50 years later. Thanks. Well, and thanks to uh, Virginia Minor and her Missouri Women's Suffrage Association, Missouri had some of the most liberal laws in the country for women. And then the suffrage movement was incredibly active here with Edna Gellhorn and, you know, and people of this stature who also had national reputations. Who, In fact, they came up with the Walkless Talkless Parade, a nonviolent demonstration when the Democratic Convention was held here in uh, 1916. Yes, 1916. And they wore the yellow sashes, which became the color for the women's movement throughout the world. How about uh, Adeline Cousins? Adeline Cousins um, was someone who was active um, in the Civil War, and um, and her daughter, she became a nurse and actually got a pension. She fought to get a pension because women didn't get pensions. Nursing mm. was something you volunteered. And her daughter was one of the first women who oh, passed the bar exam. Was she kind of like a nurse? Is that what she was doing yes, in the, in the yes, battlefield? Yes. Because yes. I think she took a bullet in the leg, didn't she? she? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the pension was thirty bucks a month. Yeah. Right. Times times Time, the, yes. time, have certain. And she had to fight for it. Another name that is more familiar to uh, people here in St. Louis would be Annie Malone. I'm not yeah. sure. We we know about the parade and the uh, and uh, the uh, building that carries her name, the institution that carries her name. But most people don't know that she was a very, very wealthy woman. Very wealthy woman and a fantastic businesswoman. Uh, she was the youngest of 10. I mean, she was born in Metropolis, Illinois, just like Superman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and her parents died early, and she helped her older sisters 
fix their hair. And she was really good in chemistry. And she thought, you know, black women really want to work on their hair. This is important. So she developed these mm. great formulas. And she came to St. Louis in 1903 because she knew that the World's Fair was going to bring a lot of people here. And she empowered women because she wanted them to be able to earn money the way she could and be independent. So she taught them to go around. Well, she taught them the skills to manufacture the hair products and uh, to use them on women and also to be saleswoman and um, and go door to door and sell these products and she became a multimillionaire multimillionaire yeah. one of the wealthiest women in Saint, in yeah. the in Missouri yeah so that's a great story we have to take a break I'm talking with Carol Shepley about her new book St. Louis an illustrated timeline we'll come back and continue this conversation in just a moment stay with us this is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Welcome back as we continue our conversation with historian Carol Shepley. Who are some of the others, and I, I hope this is not unfair to ask you, of you this way, who are some of the other obscure but important people that uh, you've included? Obscure? Right? Well, <laughs> well they're well not known. obscure to me. Yes, so well, they are to most people, though. I that's mean, true. Such as, the, such as the women we just mentioned. Yeah, are there the, others that fall into that category? The women were a big theme for me, and also African Americans, because mm. I believe, you know, that that makes up the texture of St. Louis, mm. not just all white males. Well, let's start early. Well, very early, uh, Louis Saint-Ange de Belrive mm. really was so important to setting St. Louis on its path. He was a, a Frenchman who brought... Uh, he was the military commandant, and he brought a judge, and we had civil law and contracts. And then another Frenchman was Jacques Clemorgan, who was a, a, a fur trader, and he never married, but he had a black concubine, and he had uh, four mixed-race children, and he tried to leave his his estate to them, and that was against the law. You know, yeah. that was not <laughs> yeah. acceptable. Well, I'm sure there are others, but it's unfair. with all that you've got in that book, it's unfair to try to have to draw these these <laughs> out. But let's talk about a couple of people that are better known that uh, are also included in your book. Charles Dickens, for instance, not not very flattering about St. Louis. No, except he was flattered. He didn't think much of St. Louis as kind of muddy, dirty place, but he really respected William Greenleaf Elliott, mm. who was T.S. Elliott's grandfather and the moral conscience of the city and, and really a moral conscience for the whole United States. What was Dickens doing in St. Louis? Oh, he was on a tour, a speaking tour of the whole country. Mm. He seemed to favor Cincinnati, as I as I recall from the book, uh, over... Shame o- over on you, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mark Twain lived here. Now, I never knew that. We always associate Mark Twain with uh, Hannibal, and of course, he, I guess it was Connecticut where he, where he wound up eventually. Right, yeah. But how long did he live here, and why? Um, he was, a, I'm not sure exactly how long. It was maybe five or six years, and he was based here when he was a steamboat mm-hmm. captain. He came to live with his sister. It looks like Pamela, but it's actually pronounced Pamela Moffat, and her husband, got Twain his pilot's license, and then he, you know, went up and down the river, and he said, I could have bought the city for $10,000, and it's the shame of my life I didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. He came back years later, I guess, as part of his uh, a part of his uh, writing research. Yes, many times. Well, when he wrote, did Life on the Mississippi, yeah. and he got an honorary degree from the University of Missouri and so forth, so... So we can claim a little bit of Mark, oh, you know, Mark Twain, yes. too, no question about it. All right, another, we talked about this yesterday when we were dis- discussing uh, St. Louis uh, Civil War history, and uh, a lot of people, I think, were surprised to learn that uh, Robert E. Lee spent uh, two tours uh, of duty in, in St. Louis. What was he up to? Yeah, so well, he was here at Jefferson Barracks, and he was really a very accomplished you know, civil engineer. And what was happening, which would have been terrible for St. Louis, was the currents were taking the Mississippi River. There, an island was building up, and they were taking the Mississippi River moving it, the, our shore, over to, you know, far, far from the city. So he devised the uh, methods to reroute the river so that we still had a waterfront, mm-hmm. which was pretty important. The Army Corps of Engineers, that was his, uh, exactly. that was his, assi- his assignment. Mm-hmm. And then uh, later on, he was uh, at Jefferson Barracks, uh, what, something that we learned, uh, we learned yesterday. We've, we've got a caller who wants to uh, get into this conversation. Let's bring him in. It's Eric calling from St. Louis. Eric, thank you for calling us. You're on the air. Sure, sure. Um, hey, I, I was curious if the author knew about, there was a, a, a lawyer who lived in Lafayette Square, and he lived in a, in a house that was destroyed by the tornado of 1896 with a big turret on it facing the park. But I understand that he was very influential in helping Louis, St. Louis, I mean, I, I should say the state of Missouri, side with the civil side with the North during the Civil War, and and I, my understanding is he's representative of the, a, a lot of the German uh, people who came over escaping oppression in Germany during the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, and who were very free-thinking, very liberal-minded, and were very appalled by racism. And so due to influence of people like this, that's why Missouri went from being a slave state before the war to being uh, on the other side with the Union during the war. Yes, definitely. The The German population is one of the prime reasons that Missouri stayed in the Union. They, they left Germany because of the revolutions of 1848. They were fleeing oppression, and they did not want to see slavery. They mm-hmm. And they, there was a lot of prejudice against them. They were called the Huns. And who is the lawyer? Was this Montgomery Blair or— no, that he lived on the other side of the park. He, this guy lived uh, at the corner of, uh, hmm, it's not an apartment building. Um, the house is no longer there. I remember reading about him in a history of Lafayette Square. I got the book at the Bar Branch Library, and there's mm-hmm. a little whole story about him. In, and there's a picture of his house and a picture of him, and it was quite interesting, but I forget his name. Huh. Interesting stuff. Yes, for sure. Yeah, the Germans certainly made their mark here, but so did the Italians and so did the Irish. Uh, 
a lot of them came in at the same time in the middle of the 19th century, didn't they? Right. The, the, the <clears throat> Irish came just after the Germans because of the potato famines, and, and the uh, Italians came a little later in, in, in another wave, at the end of, closer to the end of the century. Do we have any sense uh, as to how well these groups, I mean, they came in large numbers, how well they got along? Well, not so well. <laughs> Generally, you know, people stay with their own kind, and, you know, they kind of look down on each other for different reasons, you know. Well, we can, to this day, we can see certain neighborhoods where it's predominantly Italian, for instance, such as the Hill, exactly. and other places where there are, uh, were certainly large German populations. Is there a most important St. Louis in, in all of your research? Does someone just jump out as being probably oh, the my. singular person? Well, I guess... You know, of uh, well, you know, of all the people who made this city what it is, well, there there are three I can think of, and one is still alive, which is interesting. Well, of course, I mentioned William Greenleaf Elliott. I mean, mm -hmm. he was the conscience of the city. He came as a minister, but it's for education that we know him. He founded Washington University. He believed women should be educated to the same degree as men. So he also founded mm -hmm. Mary Institute so they could be trained to matriculate at the university level. He also, during 1849, when there was a cholera epidemic and the Great Fire, he was so persuasive about the civilizing values of education that he persuaded the populace to vote for a bond issue that meant St. Louis had some of the best uh, high schools in the, in the public schools in the country. And when we stayed with the union, he believed it was because people could read and they understood what is at stake. And then in the early 20th century, we had another great leading light, Luther Ely Smith. And there's a Luther Ely Smith Square that's between, right. I know you know, between mm. the courthouse and the arch. And so he, came, he was actually born in Chicago, and he married, came to law school here and married a St. Louis woman, and that he could never mm. leave again. But um, he was involved first in the playground Movement. He went to serve in World War One when he was 40 years old. He founded the Muni Opera. He brought Harlan Bartholomew here, the first civic city planner, civil engineer in the United States that a city had on staff. And then, of course, he, he was the one who had the vision and saw it through that we had to have a monument to westward expansion. Mm -hmm. And then the final one is um, William Danforth, who started out as the, um, well, first the vice chancellor of the medical school, then the chancellor of Washington University. Then when he retired, he just felt the, the voluntary uh, school transfer system was just an excellent thing to really improve education and to improve the prospects of black children in the city to go to the um, be, go to county schools. He found that they graduated 50% as compared to 16. Then he founded the Danforth Center, and then he was instrumental in founding Cortex. What happened to St. Louis? We were on top of the heap at one time, and everybody says uh, Chicago overtook us in the uh, early part of the 20th century. What, what happened here? Well, one thing, <laughs> you know, with Chicago, at the time, in 1856, the population of St. Louis was twice that of Chicago. 
But what happened was the Rock Island Bridge. You know, in the northern part of the United States, the Mississippi River, crossing it with the bridge is, you know, no big deal. Mm -hmm. But that meant that all the railroad traffic went from the East Coast through Chicago to the West Coast, which that bypassed us. But I also believe that the uh, separation of the city and the county is another big problem because we are competing with each other, you know, not working together. The, the and that was 1876. And the, the fragmentation issue. Our time is beginning to wind down, but I wanted to end our discussion talking a little bit about music because that's going to be our next oh, segment. We certainly have a prominent role in the world of uh, American music, don't we? Yes, we do. You know, with Miles Davis, this, the um, St. Louis Blues, William C. Handy, and also our symphony is the second oldest symphony in the United States. Mm -hmm. We were influenced. Nelly. You know. Well, sure. And, and it, I continue to. It continues. Right. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. It, uh, and I guess a lot of that was because of the migration from the South and from New Orleans in particular, where a lot of this, uh, got, a lot of this got started. Right. Uh, right. It went all up and down the Mississippi River. Is there a favorite part of this book for you? I know that you said you were putting a lot of emphasis on women, but is there anything that you really enjoyed writing about most? Well, I put a lot of emphasis on women, and I also put a lot of emphasis on cultural history. I put artists and authors, which isn't, which aren't, these aren't generally in in a history, but I feel that's what makes a city really real and vibrant. And mm. they, I put a lot of quotes from each author about St. Louis, so that gives a real sense of the texture. A lot of people say that St. Louis has an inferiority complex. Do you think so? Oh, I really do. And and one of the things I love is when I give my talks, people often say, oh, you make me feel so good about living in <laughs> St. Louis, because this is a wonderful place. Well, this is a wonderful book. It's a, a great way to uh, relive, uh, if you will, the history of this uh, of this community. And it's, as I said earlier, a very handsome book. It's very heavy and it's uh, very <laughs> and very detailed in a in a nice way. So, Carol Shepley, thank you so much for being with us. It's always a pleasure talking to you. We'll look forward to the uh, to the next one. Thank right. you. You always make me think. I like being interviewed by you. <laughs> and, I, and I like talking to you. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.